warning to be placed on all packages of cigarettes. Caution, cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. A couple years later, in 1969, the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, which prohibited advertising for cigarettes on um, television and radio and required a different label, a slightly upgraded, stronger label. It read like this, warning, the Surgeon General has determined that cigarette smoking is dangerous to your health. A couple years passed, 1981, a report uh, is issued to Congress that concluded that these health warning labels had little effect on public knowledge and attitudes about smoking. So, as a result of this, Congress enacted the Comprehensive Smoking Education Act of 1984, and that required four, four specific warning labels to be placed on all cigarette packages. There's hardly room for anything else on the cigarettes at this point in time. The, here's an example of one of the four. A Surgeon General's warning, smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy, and there are four, or three more very explicit warnings that were with that. Well, even these were of debated effect. So some 50 countries around the world began to require graphic pictures of cancer, gum disease, and other smoking-related illnesses. They are graphic. I'm not going to show them to you this morning because they're nasty. But uh, they had to cover between 30 and 80 percent of the packaging with these um, horrific pictures of people suffering from smoking-related illnesses. But some reports suggest that smokers um, still were not deterred. So some smokers, so, so appalled by the pictures, were they, that they, they tape, put tape over the pictures or bought special cases to put their cigarettes in so they would not have to look at them. One, uh, one study indicated that smokers may see the labels as an affront to their personal freedom, that the government is trying to control them, and it actually increased their desire to smoke. So the U.S. Court of Appeals, when approached with uh, um, matters to make this a law in our land, said that the Food and Drug Administration has not provided a shred of evidence showing that the graphic, photographic warnings will directly advance its interest in reducing the number of Americans who smoke. At this point in time, you have to wonder, what has to happen for people to heed the warnings, right? What do we have to do to make people heed the warnings that smoking is not good for you, you ought not do it? So we come to the book of 1 John. And we hear words that I think could fairly be described as graphic warnings to the church. Words like this in chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. A little farther in chapter 2. Who's the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Chapter 3 continues the warnings. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. A little farther along in verse 15 of chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 
You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So liar, antichrist, of the devil, murderer. This is pretty graphic language that John is using to warn the church. The question for us then, having studied 1 John for 13 weeks, are we heeding the warnings? Are are the warnings working? Are they graphic enough to really affect us? So to put it more directly, we've studied 1 John for 13 weeks. So what? What difference does it make? You've sat through 15 sermons on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So what? So today, what I'd like to do is pull out some of the larger teachings of 1st John, some of the familiar scriptures that will come to your mind, some of the same stories that you've heard, and see if we and you personally can get clarity on what is your takeaway from our study of 1st John. What is the thing that God wants you to carry beyond this study in such a way that it will affect and change you? And if you're a guest today, you're here for the first time, um, I hope that you'll be praying that maybe God will give you a takeaway even from this one sermon on 1 John. So if you'll put your finger in your Bible in 1 John, that's where we'll be the rest of our time today. I'd like to pray for us as we head there. So bow with me, please. Father, have mercy on us. We are forgetful, distracted, sometimes hard-headed and hard-hearted people. And we think sometimes it's enough to just hear and oh, the words of James that echo when we think that way, that we ought not just be hearers of the word, but doers only. So Lord, have mercy on us and help us this day that your spirit would take the word and affect us deeply by it. For the name of Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. So the review today, I'm going to limit it to 1 John. We've, we've just covered 2nd and 3rd John the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to do a pretty high flyover of 1 John, and we'll talk about these things. Two central traits about who God is that John writes about. And then three um, tests or, or warnings or marks, we could think of them that are supposed to mark, three things that are supposed to mark us as God's children. And so, first the traits. The first trait of God that's central in 1 John is found right out of, right out of the blocks. Chapter 1, verse 5, goes like this. This is the message that we have heard from him, we proclaim it to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, in the Bible, when writers talk about the imagery of light, it has a broad range of meanings. It, could, it can mean revelation and truth and life and purity, to name just a few. But what follows this verse in chapter 1 quite closely makes me think that it emphasizes here more that latter idea. That when John refers to God as light and having no darkness in him, he has in mind, at least in part, that God has no sin in him. There's no evil in God at all. Um, The writer of Hebrews um, puts it this way in chapter 4. He says, we don't have a high priest, that's Jesus he's writing about, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. No sin. None. 
John himself is going to say in chapter 3 of 1 John, he's going to put it this way. He's going to say, you know that Jesus appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. He's light, and there's no darkness in him at all. And since that's true, since God is light, no, no sin at all, no darkness, then he is uniquely beautiful in the universe. He is without spot or blemish or disfigurement in any way, even in the slightest. He is perfect beauty, our God. No other being in the universe can make that claim to be perfect beauty. Professor N.T. Wright says, um, what's the most beautiful thing you've experienced this week? What's the most beautiful thing you've experienced? And he says, uh, maybe it's something you heard, maybe some beautiful music, perhaps in church, maybe something in the world of nature, the the sun breaking through the mist and making the autumn leaves luminous, or the curl of a squirrel's tail, he's that nibbling a nut. It, It might be something you smell, the scent of a rose perhaps, or the smell of a good meal cooking when you were very hungry. It might be something you taste, an exquisite wine, a special cheese, that same meal well seasoned and well cooked. Maybe something you experience in work, things suddenly coming together, an unexpected new opportunity. It might be something you experience in human relationships, a quiet, gentle glance from someone you love dearly, the soft squeeze of a child's hand. I want to suggest to you, he says, that our ordinary experiences of beauty are given to us to provide a clue, a starting point, a signpost from which we move on to recognize, to glimpse, to be overwhelmed by, to adore, and so to worship, not just the majesty, but the beauty of God himself. So John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's perfectly beautiful in every way. He is the most beautiful being in the universe. That's the God that John puts forward here. He's light. And if he's light, and there's no darkness in him, then he's also trustworthy. He will do no evil to us. He will always do good to us. That's what Psalm 119 says, beautifully, really short, of God. It says, you are good and you do good. And that's why we can pray. Psalm 23, we can pray. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, the God in whom there's no evil, the God of light. So, is that how you think of God? That he's holy and beautiful and trustworthy and good and perfect in all his ways without a shred of darkness or sin. Maybe your takeaway from 1 John could be to get to know the God who is light, who is holy and beautiful. So towards that end, if that, if that ends up being your takeaway from 1 John, you need to know this part of God better, I would, I would highly recommend reflecting on scriptures that teach about the holiness of God. It's as simple as sitting down at your computer and Googling verses on the holiness of God. It's going to pull up a raft of them, and you can just meditate on them daily. Find some you want to memorize. Post them on the fridge, you know, wherever you're going to see them. And, and meditate on the holiness of God. One of our elders has said that this book changed his life. It's called The Holiness of God. 
by R.C. Sproul. It will be deep and intense and thought-provoking, and you will have no doubt that God is holy when you're done reading it. So, John declares, first of all, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He has a second major insight about God that he repeats twice in chapter 4. In verse 8, he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Drop down a few verses and he says it again. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. So God is light, John says, and he is love. And he expounds on this idea that God is love in this section in chapter 4 in the middle, starting with that declaration. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Um, Professor Constantine Campbell put it this way. He said, love therefore characterizes all of God's activities. His creating, ruling, judging, revealing, instructing, blessing, disciplining, giving, rebuking, sustaining, and recreating are all done in love. There's nothing God does that does not emanate from his loving nature. But the supreme display of his love is what John talks about in the next verse, right? In verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So if you want to see God's love, he says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and see the love of God on display. This is how we know God is love. He sent his son to give us life. Let me remind you of these thoughts by author Trevor Hudson. He says, the dying Jesus takes us deeply into the sacred mystery of God's passionate heart. Take some time to fix your eyes on this broken man nailed to the tree. Remember, this is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom God was pleased to dwell the tortured, ravaged figure strips our talk about God's love of its empty cliches and familiar sentimentality. As we stand at the foot of the cross, we catch a glimpse <clears throat> of how God in Christ absorbs the very worst we can do, bears it sacrificially in his own body, and then responds with life-giving forgiveness. The welcome home scene of the wayward son is not too good to be true. It's as real as broken flesh and a pierced side. And John says the same thing then. In the very next verse, he says it again in a different angle. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is on the initiative here. He loved us first. That's what it says in 1 John 4, right? We love because he loved us first. So it all starts with God. He initiates love when he sends Jesus into the world and onto the cross to bear the just punishment for our sins, even to bear the wrath of God for us. So look at Jesus. Look at Jesus when you doubt God's love. Look at Jesus when you wrestle with evil and suffering and wrath and hell. Look at Jesus. You remember this quote from Archbishop Michael Ramsey, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Okay. Look at Jesus. This is how we know God's love, 
and that God is love. In a word, Jesus. Here's another beautiful quote from author Trevor Hudson. This is the very essence of who the Holy One is. Extravagantly, sacrificially, passionately loving. And since this is his essential nature, this is what God is always doing. Loving you and me. This is what God is always doing. Loving you and me. So is that how you think about God? When you think of God, do you think of a being who is always loving you? Pastor Ray Ortland has written something beautiful about the way God loves, and it's in a parable form. I'd like to share it with you. He says, we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and he asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations, and hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings, and the worst of it was he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. And then Mr. Law died, he says, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace, who represents Jesus. He says, our new husband comes home every evening and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove. And we have even had other men in the house during the day. And still, he sweeps us into his arms and he says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever, and we long to be fully pleasing to him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows. So is your takeaway from 1 John to better know God is a God who loves, who is love? And so again, if that's your takeaway, sit down, Google those verses, verses on the love of God, and you'll find a raft of them, and meditate on them, think about them. Pray through them. Give thanks for them. Stick them on the fridge. You might consider a book. Here's a delightful book on the love of God. It's an easy, delightful read. Love Beyond Reason by uh, Pastor John Orberg. Just a delightful book. God is light and God is love, John tells us. So alongside these two central traits of God are three marks of those who truly are his children. And John deployed them as tests to be applied to false teachers. And this is where his graphic warnings come into play. Uh, If they lack these marks, then don't follow these teachers. They're of the devil, they're antichrists, they're liars, they're murderers. But they also assure us of our faith. And they also invite us to let these three traits mark us more and more. So, First test, first mark, the truth test. 
And it poses this question. Do you believe what is true, what the apostles taught, recorded in the pages of Scripture? Do you believe? Especially about two main areas. The first is, do you believe what the apostles taught about your sin? John opens his letter with this sobering teaching. Three times he says it. Starting in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Drop just two verses. And he says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Two more verses. He says it again. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And John, it seems, wants us to freely own our sin, not to deny it or excuse it or compare it away. We are sinners all. And so as a result of that, I have a little prayer that I pray on a daily basis, many times a day sometimes. It's an expansion of the Jesus prayer, and I call it the Jesus prayer on steroids. And it goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of us all, have mercy on me, a great and terrible sinner. I pray that daily as an expression of the acknowledgement of my sin and my need for God's mercy. So have you acknowledged to God the truth about you? Have you acknowledged that you, like me, are a great and terrible sinner? Sandwich, it's interesting, sandwiched right in between those three verses that we just read about the truth about our sin. John strategically places these words of hope. So between verse 6 and 8 comes verse 7. It reads like this. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then in between verses 8 and 10, we find this beautiful verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I've added a little phrase to that version of the Jesus prayer. It goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of us all, have mercy on me, a great and terrible sinner, yet by greater grace a son or a daughter, if it fits you better. And this leads us to the second area of truth John's greatly concerned about, the truth about who Jesus was and what he did for us. And this is where he reserves his harshest language for people who get Jesus wrong and teach that. So in chapter 2, he says this. He says, who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. He says it again in chapter 4, starting in verse 2. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so John, in contrast to what these teachers were teaching, he lays out a portrait of Jesus that's non-negotiable. 
These are the things we must believe about Jesus. So first, he was the son of God. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We must believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We have to believe that he became in flesh as a man and walked among us. Chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And We have to believe that he came among us in the flesh to die for the sins of the world. Chapter 2 says beautifully, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, Could that be your takeaway from 1 John? To better know the gospel, the good news about Jesus, or to know Jesus better. And if that's, if that's your takeaway, then again, let me commend to you. Read the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Take the rest of the year. Read them over and over. Become an expert in who Jesus is in the gospels. Learn to love who you see there. Okay. But If you're thinking about the gospel, um, this is a book that's on my list. I'm going to read it. It's called The Gospel. Um, The subtitle says, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. It's by Ray Ortland. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that. Um, If you're just wanting to read a book about Jesus, there have been several books written about Jesus. You should read one. Um, John Stott has written a, a great book about Jesus, The Incomparable Christ. Tim Keller has a wonderful book out about Jesus Um, Joe Stoll has a little, if you like little books, a little tiny book um, called Simply Jesus. It's delightful. If you want to just get started getting to know Jesus, Philip Yancey wrote one of my favorite books about Jesus called The Jesus I Never Knew. It's absolutely delightful. Um, This book would be a great place to start. Who is this Jesus by Michael Green? Short book. Answers basic questions. If you can't read, you should watch this on YouTube. It's the Gospel of John, word for word, in a delightful movie format. Just make sure you find the right one. There's a million of them. Some of them are terrible. This one's really well done. Um, And it has a a new name, I think, The Life of Jesus, but it's the Gospel of John. Um, And you can just watch it. And yes, I'll post all these resources on the Leader Blog this week, so as as you go to the Leader Blog, as you always do, you'll find these resources listed there just for you. Um, So, the truth test. Do you believe what the apostles say about your sin and about Jesus and the remedy he provides? Um, Second test, second mark of God's children, the obedience test, the mark of obedience. Chapter 2 puts it this way. um, By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And he puts it more severely in the next chapter, in chapter 3, when he says things like this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, 
for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John is saying that when we sin, we go against the very reason that Jesus came and died. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says that Jesus came to take away sin. And here in this passage, in verse 8, he says he came to destroy the devil's work. So when we choose sin, we are opposing Jesus. We're going against his life's work. The very reason that he came and that he lived and that he died. And we are embracing it. How could we do that to someone who loves us so lavishly? And if that's not enough leverage, John adds even more, saying that sin not only puts us at odds with the love of God in Jesus, but it aligns us with the devil. And John is stating his case boldly here, right? Really graphic, strong language. Part of that's because he has these false teachers in view, and to embrace sin as they did, it's impossible for someone who truly knows the love of God. But he's also concerned that the church, that we would hear the starkness of the choice that's before us. We obey Jesus or we choose sin. And again, he has in his crosshairs people who would rather than confess and grieve their sin, they would cherish it and they would welcome it and they would justify it, they would diminish it, they would explain it away, kind of like the false teachers were doing in Jesus, in John's day, rather. John says, don't fall in with those who say it's okay to sin, that it's no big deal. Because if you justify rather than confess your sin, you're saying yes to the ways of the devil and no to the ways and work of Jesus. No to the love of God for you. And John shocks us when he says, you are aligning yourself with the devil when you choose sin. And again, he's not saying you have to be perfect, that if you ever sin or choose sin, that you are that you can't possibly be a Christian. That's not his point. His point is to point out the false faith of the false teachers and call the church to love God, not sin. He's telling us that a life that welcomes sin is not a life that's marked by faith. And he wants to protect you from falling into the devil's snare from saying that sin is no big deal. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It rejects the God who loves you, who suffered and died for you. So, this could be your takeaway, right? Um, your takeaway could be a specific act of loving obedience to Christ. You may be very well aware that there is an area of, of disobedience in your life. There's something you ought not be doing. There's something you ought not be saying or watching or embracing. And God now is prompting you to lay that down, to lay it down as an act of loving obedience to Christ. So that could be your takeaway because our obedience is how we love Jesus back. Now there's a third test. It's closely related to this second test of obedience. It's really a specific application of it 
It's the test of love or the mark of love. And if you're here when we study chapter 3, you probably remember these two really short little videos. Watch them with me. This is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost drove him to a shelter. And someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And Jack Thomas? Well, he almost made it through the night. This is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her. Another almost drove her to the doctor. Still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped. They almost gave of themselves. But almost giving is the same as not giving at all. So if we were to put that in John's language, don't almost love. Love, right? Love one another. Um, in chapter 3, he put it this way so, so powerfully. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So the way that we know love, again, is by Christ laying his life down for us. The generosity of the Son and laying down his life, getting that, getting the love of Christ for it, grasping his great loving act, the giving of his very life for us, is what fuels our love for one another. Remember chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So the more we grasp Jesus' love for us, for me, for the people in this room, the more we will love one another. The more we grasp the agony of his being publicly whipped again and again and again, the humility of the crown of thorns, the soldier's cruel games being spat upon, the crushing weight of the crossbeam as he carried it up Calvary the nails driven through his hands and feet, the public mockery, the aloneness of it all as he was separated from the Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. To know this love is to fuel our love for the brothers and sisters for the church. Loving one another, John says, that's how we love Jesus back. We love whom he loves. So, to be loved by Jesus yields love for Jesus, which is naturally expressed in loving what he loves. He loves his brothers and sisters. He love, we love his bride. We love the church. And so John is offering us assurance here of our faith. The fruit of real faith is that we love one another. And he's calling us to more fully into this Christ path of loving one another, protecting us from a life of almost loving and thinking that's okay. So maybe this is your takeaway, to be more loving like Christ. 
especially to the folks in this room. Maybe someone in particular in this room whom you have been estranged from. It could be someone in your family or at school or at work, but it starts here. You know, they say that holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. We really must, John says, love one another. So those are the traits and those are the tests. So what? What's, what, is your, what is your takeaway from 1 John? After sitting through all these sermons and all your personal readings and all the small group conversations, what's your takeaway from 1 John? If you're not sure yet, if you don't have clarity, then this week you should reread 1 John prayerfully and ask God, throw in 2 and 3 John for good measure and ask God to show you what it is that he wants you to carry out of this. But if you do know what your area of takeaway is, then I would say one thing really important for you to do is tell someone. Get, get some prayer support in your obedience. This is the beauty of small groups. You're going to talk about this this week. What's your takeaway from 1 John? So what I'd like us to do is take a few minutes right now and reflect, pray, and see if we can get clarity, each of us, on what God has been saying to us through 1 John. So we'll have a time to pray, just quietly. You can open your Bible to 1 John and look at some of these verses, perhaps. Um, things that maybe you've highlighted. You can look at notes that you've taken. But let's just get clarity from God. What does he want you to carry away from the book of 1 John? And then we'll have a time of response in song and, and consecration where we come for prayer. So would you bow with me? And I'll begin us in prayer. And then let's just seek God for clarity as we close this study. Father, in your mercy, bear with us. Have mercy upon us because we surely are great and terrible sinners. Forgetful and busy and distracted and hard-headed and hard-hearted sometimes. So have mercy on us. And by your spirit and the proclamation of your word, now bring to mind... What is that way that we should love you back now by our obedience? What should it look like? So, Lord, have mercy and bring that to our minds.
you have a sense of clarity about your takeaway from 1 John, um, we're about to sing a song of response. And I'd like to invite you uh, during that time to consider coming forward down to the front here and praying a prayer of consecration, which is a prayer of saying yes to God. Um, yes to what he wants you to carry away from 1 John. Um, I invite you to come down here, not because it's, uh, these are special steps or that it's a special place or that it's some kind of uh, magic. It's not magic, but it's also not secret. And much of our obedience fails because of its secrecy. This is a non-secret way of saying yes to God. And it's the kind of saying yes that invites other people to pray with you and to pray for you. So if you come... If, you, if you'd like to, uh, grab a friend or a family member and come down and ask them to pray for you. Um, some of our leaders from our women's ministry and our elders and pastors will be available down here. If you would like us to pray with you, we would love during this time to pray with you. Um, but use this time as we stand to sing our love for God and our love for one another. Use this time to say yes to whatever God is speaking to you. So if you'd stand... Let's, let's do that together. Sisters, 